actually, this is really good for me. I have a lot of projects I'm working on. Huh? Just a lot of projects. Oh, like what? W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Apollo Twin X. Not quite analog tones. Same as last week, I am still in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, in a small cottage, using something of an ad hoc recording setup. But, my friends, there has been a breakthrough. I will tell you about the breakthrough in a moment. First, I want to tell you that on the show today, it's Katie Ruth Ashcraft, the writer and filmmaker. You have read her work at Jezebel. You may have seen some of her short films. We are going to talk about both of those things extensively on the show today. We also do have a Wildcard Wednesday segment coming at you. Now, as some of you uh, have noticed Wildcard Wednesday uh, comes out with the show on Friday, not on Wednesday. That is because the segment is simply too wild for the middle of the week. Here's the big news. Something spectacular happened last night. I mentioned I'm here in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. That is Cape Cod, for those of you who are not familiar with the place. Cape Cod is a beautiful beach community, and I started coming here when I was just a little kid. And as a little kid, I dreamed of being an actor. And one of the fantasies that that fueled that dream was that there was a theater, still is, a theater here in Wellfleet called the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater. What, for short, popular joke, when you open up a program at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater... It says W-H-A-T, staff, and it is very entertaining to look to the person to your left, in this case, my fiancé, Adrian, who I'm very grateful puts up with my jokes, and say, staff, what staff? Just minutes of laughter, at least on my part. Okay, anyway, Wolfleet Harbor Actors Theater, one of the things that I always really admired about them is it's a community theater. And there's nothing wrong with community theaters that don't do this, but something this community theater does that I always admired is they mount very difficult plays. It always seemed to me like they were always doing an innovative production of of Fool for Love by Sam Shepard, say, or just recently, in fact, they did Jesus Hop the A-Train by Stephen Adley Giergis. These are challenging acting-intensive plays. This is not one of those theaters that just puts up something that they know is going to feel safe uh, and bring in a bunch of vacationers to see something fluffy. And as an aspiring actor, that was catnip to me. And so when I got into my mid-20s and I was sending out headshots with great abandon, very embarrassing period in my life, where I used to actually, I had this set of postcards that had my headshot on them, which is embarrassing enough, but what I used to do 
is draw a little dialogue balloon on the headshot before I sent it into, say, the casting director at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater. And I would write in, <laughs> in silver, you know, those foil markers. So let's say the casting director's name was Dax Shepard. That's not who it was, but that's the first name I thought of for some reason. In silver foil marker, I would write, Hey, Dax, let's do this, in hopes that that would get Dax to flip the postcard over and look at whatever I had written on the back, which was probably even more embarrassing. Anyway, I wanted to perform at what so badly, and I sent them my headshot and resume no fewer than six times, and I never heard anything until the summer of 2007, I turn on what was at the time my flip phone, and I have a voicemail. And I check the voicemail, and it is from Dax, or whoever Dax really was, the casting director at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater. It says, hey, we received your materials. We'd love to have you do an audition. I call back instantly. There is no answer. I leave them a message, very enthusiastic message, saying, I have received your voicemail. And I speak like a thespian, of course, in the voicemail. Please call me back. I would love so much to audition for you. Friends, they do not call me back. I got the one voicemail from them, and that was it. I call back three or four more times because I have a phone number. Now you have made the grave error, Dax Shepard, of giving a thirsty actor a direct phone number to a casting director. Ooh, dangerous game you're playing. I leave... I don't know how many voicemails. They just never call me back. So then that summer, 2007, I'm here on Cape Cod just on vacation, and I go to Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater. I go to the box office. I press my face against the glass. There's a poster for some Sam Shepard play to the right of my head, and I'm breathing on this glass, fogging it up, peering inside. Like, how, how did I get this close and still have it not happen? Sixteen years go by until it is last night. And I am here. I have changed careers. I am a professional podcaster who obviously very carefully scripts his show intros. Sorry, I'm almost done. And me and Adrian and my mom and my brother, we are going to see the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged. And I have reached a point in my life, or so I think, where I'm very happy being a spectator at a play. I can go and not spend the entire time wondering what was so bad about me as an actor that I was never able to make it. So there we are, we're watching the play, and I don't know if you've ever seen the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged, but there's a part where they turn the house lights up and they ask for an audience volunteer to play Ophelia in Hamlet. So they turn the house lights up, they peer out into the audience, and the actress who is going to ask for this audience volunteer first asks Adrian if she would like to do it. Adrian does not want to do it. I assume that they're going to pivot to another female presenting person in the audience to play Ophelia. 
even though this is Shakespeare and gender was always a question mark there, uh, which is one of the cool things about Shakespeare. Anyway, they don't do that. They point at me and they say, how about you, sir? And I say yes. I say yes. And I climb down to the front of the stage and I get up onto the stage. And 16 years after I pressed my face against the glass of the box office at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater, I am performing on the stage of the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater. I have one line. It's not even a line. It is explained to me by the company members of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged that my job is one of them is going to run on stage, say to me, get thee to a nunnery, and I'm supposed to scream. They run on stage. They say, get thee to a nunnery. I scream, and it comes out very, very loud because it is a scream of validation, of vindication, of existential catharsis. It is the sound of cosmic forces interlocking to complete some kind of 16-year historical cycle that I didn't even realize I was in the middle of. How very Shakespearean. Before I tell you about Katie Ruth Ashcraft, my guest on the show today, I need to tell you about Katie's mom. Because Katie's mom is an artist named Georgia Deal, and we're going to talk about her more in the actual interview. Um, But Georgia used to teach at at the dearly departed Corcoran College of Art and Design in Washington, D.C., and she knew my mom. My mom was also a professor at the Corcoran, and the Corcoran was an incredibly special place that celebrated studio art of all different kinds, and... My mom and Georgia were friends. And Georgia, like all of my mom's friends from the Corcoran, was cool. She was so interesting. And she had this creative, has, she's still with us, has this beautiful creative spirit that was not common in a lot of my parents' other friends. But the Corcoran people just had this, this verve to them, this, this sort of visionary joy seemed to inform their every interaction. And never was this more abundantly illustrated for me than when I was in my early 20s. I had just moved to New York and I was working at this hotel, somewhat fancy hotel. And I was a bellman and Georgia and her family, including Katie Ruth, were going to come to New York for a visit. And I got an employee discount at the hotel. And that discount extended to family members. So my mom And Georgia came up with this scheme that we should pretend that Georgia was my aunt so that I could get her and the family a discounted room at the hotel. And this was a very deep discount. A room at this hotel at that time, so this is maybe 20 years ago, went for something like 400 a night and I could get it for 50 a night. So I do it. I make the reservation uh, under my own name. I say that it's for my aunt Georgia. And presumably, we're good to go. What I am not anticipating (laughs) is that when Georgia and the family arrive, 
Georgia has gotten into character as my aunt. So she walks into the lobby of the hotel and I'm standing there and she comes running up to me with her arms open and says, nephew, Sam, nephew, Sam, it's so good to see you, my nephew. And she gives me this big hug. And I, being a a trained actor, as previously illustrated, try to just yes and it and go along and say, oh, Aunt Georgia, it's so wonderful to see you and the family. Ah, I can't believe you are here in New York at last. Now, none of this was necessary, right? Once I declared her to be a family member and the reservation was entered in the system, it's not like there was going to be something that popped up on the computer that necessitated them saying, but are you really... Sam the Bellman's aunt, it would have just popped up and said discounted rate and they would have gotten their room and they could have been on their way. But Georgia wanted to make sure that we squeezed all of the juice out of this bit. And I appreciated that so much. And one of the things that I talk about with Katie Ruth in this episode is what it's like to have a parent like that, a parent who just sees the world differently and how it informs your own journey as an artist trying to make your way in the world when you have had that kind of spirit modeled for you all your life. Now, Katie Ruth, of course, is not just the daughter of an artist, the daughter of two artists, in fact, but she is an accomplished artist in her own right, and one that, because of her background, has a very profound understanding of the stakes of the commitment that is necessary to keep that flame alight. And Katie Ruth has done all different sorts of creative work in her career. She's been a stand-up comedian. She has been an improv comedian. She is a poet. Uh, I have seen her do these very interesting um, animation pieces. But the two elements of her practice that we're going to focus on the most in this conversation are her filmmaking work and her writing. At the moment, she writes for the website Jezebel. She writes on politics. She writes on culture. One of my favorite things that she does is write about the obvious hypocrisies in celebrity culture and film and music culture that official public relations channels fall all over themselves to hide from us um, and do a terrible job of hiding. And Katie Ruth, with a very, very funny and insightful perspective, uh, has a great deal of fun at the expense of that bullshit media complex uh, in which we all unfortunately exist. Now, one last thing here, folks. I recorded this interview at my studio, which was great because I Always love to talk to people in person, but when I record in person, there is always the danger that the hairstylist who is in the office next door to mine will be cutting hair. And when this gentleman cuts hair like a good hairstylist, he chats people up. And I have done everything I can to try to keep the sound from bleeding through the walls, but... You can hear it in the background. In a couple of spots in this interview, I apologize. It's not that distracting. I just don't want you to think that it's some other mysterious sound or that there are ghostly voices interfering with your headphones. Anyway, 
It was wonderful to talk to Katie Ruth about all of those things, as well as some uh, of the unexpectedly formative creative experiences that we have in high school that in the moment we could not possibly appreciate the depth of, but which end up being some of the most pivotal interactions of our entire lives. So this is my conversation with Katie Ruth Ashcraft on WALT. Katie Ruth Ashcraft, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So the first question I like to ask everybody is, like, if we were to picture Katie Ruth in the throes of The Midnight Disease, what would that look like? I think, and this hasn't always been the case, but right now, it's like um, like longer pieces I'm writing. Um and that feels a little like ravenous of like, I need to remind myself to stop. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Nobody's ever said this before. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Um, am I understanding correctly that the feeling is there is just so much to say and I must say it all? Or t- tell me about the ravenousness. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, um, it kind of like toggles back and forth between being in a flow state of writing and then. Also, sometimes in a flow state of researching, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I am, I'm in the middle of reading something and then I, I mean, it's probably just like, I'm calling this a practice. It's like ADHD. And then like <laughs> halfway through, I'm like, oh, I have to Google this. And then it's like, I have like, then like 80 tabs open, a notes app, like thoughts that I'm jotting. Uh-huh. And there's a hyperlink to like an article they reference. I'm like, gotta read that. And I can uh-huh. just like... I'm like, I have to stay up and consume all of this because I just want to understand all of this. Is the sense that if you don't read everything as you're writing and keep note, keep track of your thoughts in parallel in the notes app, that you will lose the story? Is it a fear of loss? Um, it's not. That's so interesting. It's not so much of a loss. It's more like I want... Sometimes it's like a fear of like, I want to know everything so I can know how I feel about it. Mm. And if like there's something I don't know about it, that might influence how I feel about it. And the more I can understand, the more I can hone my opinion on something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So when I'm like writing something, like I think about all the different angles of like, what kind of person would be interested in this? Mm. Um, And then I'm like, what would their... What would they know more about than me? You know, I, I like, yeah. So sometimes it, it can kind of balloon out in a lot of different directions, um, for better or worse. Because yeah. at a certain point, there's only like I, I'm not going to know everything, and I just have to write the piece. <laughs> yeah, but I'm fascinated in this idea of um, what would a person who what would a person who knows more than me about this know? Mm-hmm. Is the idea there that you want to make sure that when that theoretical person reads your piece they know that you did the research yeah i want to um know that they did the research and like one thing as a writer i've accepted is that there's just like everyone 
there's always just going to be people who are more of experts in the things I'm writing about. Yeah. Um, and what what I bring to the table is that like I am an expert in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Yeah, and so like the, you know I can like speak to them and I can like get their knowledge and then like my craft is explaining it. Mm-hmm. So I try to remind myself of that of like I don't have to be their level of expertise. Obviously, like, there's just going to be some people who read the stuff I write and are like, wow, she didn't think of X, Y, Z. But, like, in general, I would like, like, the community at large to not, like, write it off by being like, well, she clearly didn't think about this, you know? Or, like, this is just a blatant, like, overlook. And so I, when I have the luxury of the time to, like, Mm -hmm. cover those bases, I really try to cover those bases. You make me think of one of my favorite quotes uh, by David Simon, Mm -hmm. who's— uh, someone I hold in very high regard. Yes. And he said once regarding The Wire, mm-hmm. I mean, he said it, he's David Simon, so what he actually said is, fuck the lowest common denominator, <laughs> fuck him right to hell. Uh, mm-hmm. I do not wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat worrying that that guy won't understand my show. I wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night worrying that someone who knows the world that I am writing will watch my show Mm -hmm. and go, now that guy didn't get it. That's exactly it. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Totally. Like, and, you know, I talk a lot about, like, the luxury of the time of writing because, like, in my job, I'm writing sometimes, like, two or three things a day. I mean, in a dream world, I'm writing one or two, one, usually. But, like, it's a fast turnaround. Um. But when I have the luxury of writing longer pieces, um, I always say, like, the first first draft is, like, me explaining it to myself. Mm-hmm. The second draft is me, like, making it all make sense. <laughs> and then the third draft is, like, um, treating the audience as, like, smart people. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's that sort of same idea. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I have a bunch of questions for you about your voice as a writer. But before we get there, I want to rewind pretty considerably. Yeah. Because um, we have something in common, Mm -hmm. which is moms who are artists. And actually, your mom and your dad are both artists. Yes. And I heard you on Las Culturistas probably... Four years ago, I think, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was like 2019. I think it was around when Ramsey came out. Yeah. And you said, if memory serves, that a big thing you have taken away from growing up with the parents that you grew up with is if you make art, you are an artist. And I think that is one of those deceptively simple observations and deceptively powerful lessons. So can you, like, say a little bit more, I guess, about what that sentiment, how you kind of came into an awareness of that sentiment? Yeah, definitely. So um, my mom is a printmaker, papermaker, book artist. Um, she worked at the Corkin for many years with your mother. That's R.I.P. How, R.I.P. Yeah, I know. Oh, truly. Um not our mothers, the Corcoran. <laughs> yes, uh, both very much still alive. <laughs> yes. um, Corcoran, very dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, my dad is a sculptor and like public works artist, Tom Ashcraft. And they're both incredible artists. And they're both like 
kind of for all intents and purposes, like they're not famous artists. Um, they've made living like teaching art. They're still actively showing art. Um, and they take their work really, really seriously. So I think that's something I just like witnessed growing up. And not only did they like take their work seriously, but their like community all took each other's art really seriously. I mean, yeah. I remember going to like shows of your mother's and mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Kushner, like Chip Richardson, just like these like community of artists who are their friends, but um, people they also just like really respected. So I don't know, like I just had these like models growing up of like adults who art was really, really important to them. And they weren't like at the Whitney, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, I don't know, but it's like, I, it, it wasn't until later that it made, I thought, I kind of like realized, I'm like, oh, there are obviously some artists who are like, you know, the Kahinde Wileys or these people who become like superstars, you yep. know? Mm-hmm. Like they're not, you know, famous in that regard and they've had to have other jobs and other sources of income. But like, I really just try to remember that like, they just like make art. <laughs> yeah. Well, what resonated with me when mm-hmm. I heard you say that, for me, I'm sure this was true of you too, mm-hmm. our house was my mom's art project. Yeah. Um, she made our coffee mugs. She made the table that we sat at. Mm-hmm. Um, it was her art that was on the walls. It was it was everywhere. It was yeah. it was inescapable. And it also, I think, formulated for me this early association with art as it's something you do. It's not a career you have. Yeah. And it's like really integral to like your identity too. Like yeah, like our home was again also really filled with art and like it, it wasn't like a separated thing. Like, oh, I am pursuing art as a career. Mm-hmm. Like I just there's no um like understanding of my parents separate from them making art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something I think a lot about when I'm making stuff and what I'm deciding to make is it was always just sort of a North Star for me where I was like, I have to just make exactly what I want to make because, like, just the reality is, like, you won't get famous from it. You yeah. know, or, like, or I should say, like, the likelihood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you might as well just make and do exactly what you want to do because if that's what gets you, you know, your ticket out of here or whatever, um, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, you did exactly what you wanted to do. And then if you do what you think you're supposed to do or you do what you think like other people want you to do, you still kind of have that same percentage chance of making it, Mm -hmm. which is pretty low. And then you're not doing what you want to do. Yeah. So you might as well just do what you want to (laughs) do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that also makes me think about the community element of art Mm -hmm. in DC area, Yeah. um, which is where we both grew up. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because something else that I remember noticing about your parents that I feel like I definitely appreciate about my mom and a lot of the other folks that you named in this world Mm -hmm. is they had a spirit to Mm -hmm. them that was – I'm trying to think of a meaningful comparison, but it's like I find a lot of times living in New York, you meet a lot of people who need you to know – in the first moments of your interaction that they are a stand-up comedian or an actor or mm-hmm. what, some kind of artist. Yeah. They need you to know that. They, mm-hmm. need, they need that to be the filter through which you experience them. And a strong sense I always got from your parents is they sort of don't care if you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> that that's what they're doing. And I think that comes from the fact that they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's like they don't – it's not something they have to – like you only have to prove it to yourself. And it has been proven because you do it. Yeah. And, and I think like also a really shared like personality trait I find from those people I mentioned and just a lot of artists – I admire is like curiosity yeah, and like going into situations like open-minded and not with a point to prove themselves, Mm -hmm. but sort of like a point of like how, what can I discover? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree so much. I agree so much. And, and I think if you have the kind of practice that our parents have, Mm -hmm. it's like a secret weapon. If you go into a situation not feeling like you need to prove something because you have your practice, mm-hmm. you have your frame that you interpret the world through. Mm-hmm. It's like it gives you this perpetual container in which your very existence and presence is enough for the possibility of something marvelous to happen. Even if it doesn't happen in this interaction, yeah, it might happen when you are later reflecting on it at the sculpture table or... Um, at the printmaking table. Totally. There was this really wonderful article that was in the Times last week, and of course I'm forgetting now the author, but he wrote about the show happening at the Blanton Museum in Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's called Day Jobs, and it's all about artists who have day jobs. It's like this myth of a failure. So much of making art is our connection to the world, and Mm -hmm. jobs, you know, help us stay connected to the world. And... It was just a great article, and it was, like, kind of exactly what I needed to read last week, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, so these are all these wonderful things about yes. <laughs> growing up with parents who are artists. Um, I'm curious, do you remember any early inklings in yourself of wanting to make art of your own? And this is obviously a leading question because I'm telling you how I feel, uh-huh. but um, – <laughs> And and then a sense of maybe comparing yourself to what your parents did. Yeah. I mean, I do have some visual art practices, but I'm much more of like a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a background in comedy. And, and also, I think it's sort of specific to to writing, because writing is like something everyone hopefully learns to do in elementary <laughs> school at the state of education. Uh, it's like <laughs> iffy right now, though. Yeah. Um, so, like, I sometimes had a hard time understanding writing as art. Um, ah. Because, like, it just – and similar with, like, comedy and even, like, skills, like, interviewing and stuff like that. Because you're like, well, I'm just talking to people or I'm just, like – I'm just communicating and I think it's taken me a while to be like oh I'm a good communicator Mm -hmm. and actually that's like a skill I have and that is like a practice I have so in that ways I do feel like I was like well I'm not an artist like my parents because they're Uh my mom is in her studio you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she's like sets time aside and she's making something you can hold yeah I'm (laughs) I'm so glad you brought this up this this idea of like the tangible presence of the art yeah um to give you an example, something that I always go back to with my mom is mm-hmm. the cold uh, – no, the hot water faucet in our downstairs bathroom stopped working. Mm-hmm. And my mom took a beautiful piece of paper mm-hmm. and punched a hole in it and tied a lovely blue ribbon through the hole. Mm-hmm. And she wrote in her flowing cursive script, temporarily out of service. Uh-huh. And she tied it to – the faucet handle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got so 
mad, uh-huh. <laughs> not at her. At, it doesn't even occur to her how expressive a way of handling an extraordinarily quotidian, basic yeah. thing that is. Mm-hmm. It, it's That's just, so funny. <laughs> it's just the blood that runs through her veins. Totally. And so even if she didn't make a photograph that day, she made that beautiful little handmade out-of-order yeah. sign for our bathroom um, oh. that people are going to see. And I'm sure she's not even thinking this. They're going to see it, and they're going to know that the fa- that part of the faucet doesn't work, but they're also going to – it's going to deepen their sense of who she is as a maker of things in the world. Yeah. And as somebody who grew up, like, wanting to, like, play the saxophone or be an actor and eventually to, like, have a radio show or a podcast, you yeah. you can't – that doesn't exist. Totally, yeah. I mean, I, my relationship with writing is I often – and this is horrible and cringeworthy, but I used to carry a journal around. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would ask people if they wanted to see it. Mm. And it was because I wanted them to know, just so you know, you got a writer on your hands. Totally. Yeah, it's like how do you, like, I mean, it's sort of what we were talking about earlier, this, like, need to be like, I, me artist. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So let me ask you. I don't have paint splattered on my jeans, you know? And it's like, it's like, like, oh, but I have really good thoughts in my head. (laughs) Yes. And to show some love for, you know, the the folks I was like mildly denigrating earlier, your comedians, your actors in New York. I think this is part of why there's a certain personality that sometimes goes along with these less tangible art forms is you don't have a concrete way of letting people know. We got to get those jester hats back. (laughs) (laughs) Those? You're like, look, I make people laugh for a living. (laughs) Yeah, hello. (laughs) Hire me for your child's birthday party. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So in this vein, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to ask you about a person from your past uh, named Froggy, um, who I heard you talk about on... Oh, I was like, do you know her? (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Good old F train. Yeah. I don't know her, but um, I heard you you tell some stories about her on another podcast, Mm -hmm. and... um, she sounds like she was a very offbeat presence in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also was, if I understood correctly, a pretty formative art teacher. What was it like to come from an artistic home mm-hmm. where, like, the stuff of life is art and then go to a, a class where you're being invited to create a little bit more in your own image? Yeah. I mean, so – Froggy was, like, my art teacher who I had in high school, and then I eventually, like, I forget what it was called, but I was, like, her student teacher or something. Or, like, my senior year, I was able to, like, do a period, class period, where I, like, assisted her, which was, like, very comical because she was so disorganized. Um, (laughs) And so one of the most famous alum from my high school was um, Martin Lawrence. Okay. And when he got famous— he bought her a car, which is, like, all you want to do when you get famous is, like, you'd be able to be, like, oh, and I got, you know, her a house and her a car. And it's, like, <laughs> I was, like, oh, Martin Lawrence living the dream and, like, <laughs> paying it forward, paying it backward, you know. Anyways, he buys his former art teacher, who's also my art teacher, a car. At some point in the first year, she, like, totals it in a car accident <laughs> and then asks him for another one. <laughs> and 
um, from my understanding, he was like, no, <laughs> like, I can't just keep giving you new cars. Um, that was always a story that was told to us. And that was just sort of the person Froggy was. Like, just wow. Wow. wonderful, like, a heart 10 sizes too big and just so chaotic. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, just setting the scene. Um, so Froggy was kind of cool because she, like, was just, like, deeply, deeply creative. Like, one of those people who could, like, you know, she did calligraphy. She just, like, had a really, really good eye for things and was, like, really trying to also, I think, like, teach us, like, technical aspects of art. Like, mm -hmm. I remember a famous assignment in her class was we would have to draw an old open window frame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, a lot of lines, a lot of depth perception, and... I remember feeling, like, frustrated by it because, like, there was definitely part of me that was like, this isn't – drawing a window frame isn't art. Like, I know art. Like, you know, <laughs> I – my parents made me go to art galleries all the time as a kid. And, like, it was, like, really practical advice um, mm -hmm. that I just think about a lot. And I remember her, like, lecturing us a lot about, like, perception and talking about, like – you know, you're sitting next to someone and you guys might be seeing something like the same thing and it looks different. And like that has also like thinking about that has like influenced how I write. And like, hmm. um, yeah, she just was like in, in the best possible way, like a nut job, but like really <laughs> like kind of drove home some of these like lessons and tried to make us get just like good at these like smaller technical skills that like, yeah. Um, you know, my parents were never sitting me down and doing that sort of stuff. Like, I think I got a lot of, like, sort of more, like, you know, creative identity from them. But then she really provided a lot of this, like, creative technical skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also feel like you're describing something that doesn't get appreciated enough, which is part of the reason that people like this are so formative is that they are a combination of this benign chaos and then seemingly casual but incredibly profound wisdom. Like, mm -hmm. no two people look at the same thing the same way. Yeah. Like, the first time you hear that, it blows your mind. Um, and when it comes from somebody who... Actually, I'm just remembering that. Didn't she, like, lock you in a closet or something? Yes. I mean, she was, like... <laughs> she was crazy. <laughs> she, like, did, like... We had this big walk-in art closet that was a mess. And and when I was her student teacher, she, like, locked me in there with the other student teacher. And, which all, and like, he was, like, I think, like, a boy a grade older than me. He was oh, a junior. He was a senior. And it was, like, I mean, like, nothing happened. And I was, like, you don't know. You know? <laughs> but she was, like, you guys, this next hour have to, like, organize this, you know? <laughs> and I do think, honestly, like, looking back, like, I think part of her locking us in there is, like, if, if she didn't like close it or lock us in there, she would have wandered in and started talking to us. Uh -huh, and like, uh -huh. it was like actually almost like a boundary for herself of like, you guys need to handle yeah. that. <laughs> um, which, like, again, not, you know, wouldn't recommend, but right, like, yeah. I'm sorry to laugh. It is gently abusive. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I mean, like, it, yeah, it, it was, you know, abusive in those ways where it's like, yeah, yeah, kids need to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it, it so speaks to me to this, this, phenomenon of the person like that where, I mean, to hear you describe it, it, it's not like she was trying to do a social experiment. Um, she was, in her mind, 
through a through a true artist's lens, solving an immediate problem, which yeah. is the closet needs to be cleaned. I have my two student teachers here. I'll put them in there, and so that I don't interrupt them, I'll lock them in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It, yeah, it was like, yeah, she, like I said, I mean, I can't emphasize it enough. Like, she was a total nut job, and she was, like, the teacher that, like, everyone ate in her classroom at lunch because mm-hmm. she was, like, uh, yeah. Like, she just was cool. Like, yes. she drove you crazy, and she was, like, cool and understanding and, like, you could, like, say anything in front of her and she was not going to blink an eye. Or you could gossip in front of her and she would be like, tell me more and then not share your secrets. And it was like, you know, it was awesome. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad. That is such a type. Yeah. That, the teacher whose classroom everybody eats lunch in. Yeah. And it's always the teacher, in, in my experience, it's never the teacher you would expect because it's never the teacher who, in their energy, is asking to be thought of as, like, I'm your teacher, but I'm also your friend. Totally. Like, she was, like, much older. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, she was, like, there was no part of Froggy that was, like, trying to be cool. <laughs> like, and she wasn't. I mean, she was, but, like, she was not cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so. I think it felt very, like, safe in that way. Yeah. and But it's so interesting because there are all these elements of her which are slightly unsafe, right? Maybe not unsafe, but, like, a little bit out of control. Yeah. But maybe if you have an artistic mind, as you were already developing at that age, you're already starting to perceive, well, not everybody has it figured out. Like, not everybody does things in an orderly, rational way. So it 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 does feel kind of safer to spend time around somebody who is, like, clearly a functioning adult, but yeah. not shying away from that. My version of this is Madame Evans, uh-huh. <laughs> who, it, th- this version was, it was the classroom that everybody hung out in before school, like before mm-hmm. the bell rang. And kind of similarly to the messiness you're describing, she would literally, we would all be sitting in class talking about all kinds of inappropriate things. People were playing catch with like various objects. Mm-hmm. Um and she would just be sitting there grading papers and literally smoking cigarettes. Amazing. <laughs> and, which tells you how long ago this was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the only thing she would ever really say is, like, you guys can't tell anybody I'm smoking in here. Yeah. That was that was it. Yeah. But what that led to is I'm just – I had totally forgotten about this, but, like, I had this friend in who I would sit with in that class, and somehow it developed – that we would all be sitting in this class, and he and I would do these little comedy bits uh-huh. in front of everybody. Because it, it it's cringeworthy to remember that, because I'm like, well, why did we decide, like, you know what these people want? No, but yeah, it's <laughs> like, you got, like... <laughs> but they, they, like, they killed. Yeah. And it was, it was the first time I'd ever written my own material to perform, which, like, later become became a core part of my life. Yeah. And it wasn't because I took some performance class yeah it was because of a person like this yeah like who like provides that space i mean this is another really funny froggy story where um you know the art classes all your other classes were mostly like everyone's a ninth grader everyone's a tenth grader but the art classes would be all levels yes um so that was also sort of like a fun part of it you know Mm -hmm. it was like a real extracurricular class and but there's this one guy who like if my memory serves me correctly, it was his, like, third year being a freshman. (laughs) And um, he was just, like, a, like, huge troublemaker, but, like, just sort of, like, a smooth-talking guy. Uh uh Obviously talked his way out of a lot of trouble. And 
one day he walks into class and I look over him and he has this big, big t-shirt on that like almost goes down to his knees and it's a Home Depot t-shirt. I didn't really think anything of it. <laughs> and then um, I just hear like Froggy like bust out laughing and she's like, oh my God, his shirt. And then we all look at it and he had screen printed it and it actually said the Ho Depot. <laughs> But, like, she, like, but it was, like, really well done. You know what I mean? Like, and he's, like, oh, I'm selling these shirts. And, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she just, like, rolled her eyes. She's, like, yeah, she's, like, just put a hoodie on and, like, because like, you're going to get in trouble. And it was, like, kind of this great moment where she's, like, could have gotten this kid in trouble. Like, he should right. not have had a shirt that said the Ho Depot on. Yeah. And she's, like, this kid's screen printing his shirts. He's making, like, funny parody shirts. I'm sure he made some good money off of it. Like, and, and like, it was, like, yeah, just that space to, like, um, be, like, creative and silly and irreverent. Yeah. Yeah, it was she, cool. <laughs> she, like, recognized this kid had an impulse to create. Yeah. Madame Evans, my friend Zach, had this uh, kind of, like, crackhead Mickey Mouse character he used to draw uh -huh. named Dickie Weasel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he started making Dickie Weasel t-shirts. Uh-huh. And he came in and was, like, selling them in this homeroom class one day. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Madame Evans, like, put out her cigarette and was like, let me get one of those. Uh -huh. You know? <laughs> just, like, it, just these, like, little... Yeah! You get a customer. Moments. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Plenty more to come with Katie Ruth Ashcraft. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to The Midnight Disease on WALT. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Do you remember any early moment, maybe it was poetry, of realizing that you had written something that wasn't just, oh, I feel like an artist, and rather was, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I'm, this is what I'm trying to make. Yeah. For me, poetry, <laughs> this is going to sound so pretentious. <laughs> like You it, are adjusting your berets, <laughs> you say know, this, very exactly. <laughs> on brand. I'm lighting a cigarette. Um, <laughs> like, if writing is like, um, 
of fruit, then like poetry is like the nectar. It's like very concentrated. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that's earned. You have earned your beret. Thank you so much. Um, it's really concentrated. And because it's so concentrated, like there's not a lot of room. Like it kind of feels like this like jigsaw puzzle or like a <laughs> Rubik's Cube. You're like, oh, I got it. Like you're like that last click. And like sometimes you get that kind of early. I mean, not actually for a Rubik's Cube. I've never solved a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> but, like, I imagine that's a satisfying feeling. And you're like, well, it's done. It's right. Um, and sometimes that is how, it, like, it feels with poems. And, like, especially, I mean, just, like, in those heightened teen emotions. Sometimes I'm like, can I go back to having those emotions? Because it was a lot easier to write about those emotions. Yes. <laughs> than the more, like, kind of ennui of being in your mid-30s. <laughs> but, um yeah, like, I definitely think there was just a few times where I'm like, I fucking nailed it. Like, yeah. and it just feels, you're like, oh, like, oh, I got the nectar. Yes. I think often about the first moment that I felt like, oh, I actually made some art. Not mm-hmm. I... Yeah, what was yours? Not I did some art-shaped writing, but mm-hmm. I actually made some art was I wrote about what it felt like to be working at Ben & Jerry's. Mm-hmm on a Friday night when everybody else was out with their friends and going to Ben and Jerry's. Mm. And they would get in line and, that you know, I could smell alcohol in their breath. I could, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, they all had significant others and I didn't. And I was, like, covered in, like, chocolate sauce and, like, totally. waffle cone <laughs> dust. And... Actually, to your point earlier, wearing a Ben and Jerry's jester hat. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> And I I had to look at them and say, like, can I help you? Yeah. You know? And I just wrote about that. I just wrote about one night and all the people that I knew that came in. And I, in retrospect, I wasn't trying to write something clever. Mm-hmm. I was just writing about what it felt like. Yeah, you're, like... And I think that's what I was saying about when you have those, like, big emotions and you're just like, I got to describe that. Yes. Because it feels almost like a way of, like, if I can describe it, I have some control over it. Or that's how it is for me, at least. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I And and I wouldn't have thought to put it this way before, but it, in retrospect, I was writing the nectar. Yeah. Instead of writing the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And my version of it wasn't poetry, but it, it was the same impulse i think yeah it's like yeah it's, it's like especially when it, it's like associated with like such a strong feeling or such a strong moment mm-hmm. what you were saying earlier that idea of like just being an artist is like you actually do just feel this like kind of urgency you're like oh, i have to like describe this yes who were some of the the first writers that you read who made you feel like that like where you recognized nectar I actually wrote my, like, college thesis on Louise Gluck. Um, oh, yeah. And she has this, like, wonderful collection called Meadowlands about um, her divorce. And she writes in, like, pretty plain language, mm-hmm. which I'm always mm-hmm. really drawn to in all types of writing. Like, if, if there's anyone who I think is trying to confuse me with big language, I'm like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I'm just like, you're trying to be, like, yeah. hard to get. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, like, also, it's sort of, like, actually an issue on my part where I'm just like, no, people just write things in different styles. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. She's someone that, like, 
can write both about like really, really like big feelings in small poems or like really small moments that just the attention she gives them makes them feel as important as they are. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, her, Amy Hempel, Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks has this great quote. It's like one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's like, we look at a flower and we don't ask it to be anything it's not. We accept it as something different from ourselves. And oh, yeah, that's... I know. It's like, it's just like, it's so beautiful. I'm not really saying it correctly, but it's like, I think about that with art. I think about that with people. I think about with that, like, with like maintaining. Um, a lens of like curiosity, mm-hmm. like you can appreciate it and understand that it's a separate thing. It's so interesting, you know. Like I, one of the reasons I carried that journal around is because I wanted to write down things that happened that I wanted to make sure I didn't forget, mm-hmm. or little little phrases from books or you know lines from movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the ones that really volcanoed my brain mm-hmm. I don't have to write those down yeah <laughs> they they like have a physical presence under my skin totally and I, like I do think there is something um like really helpful about the practice of like making yourself describe something mm-hmm. you know like that is like actually just like a technical skill so much of what you're describing seems to me to be present in your films. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. And I want to start with Ramsey, if you mm-hmm. don't mind. My favorite line in Ramsey mm-hmm. is when she says, I remember every single thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and it's so, and you can't tell me like what didn't happen because I know. Yeah. <laughs> that is so relatable. Yeah. That, that sense, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about having this conversation with you. So I'm, I'm, orienting my experience of that line towards a certain interpretation, of course, but what really landed for me was this idea that when things happen to you and you are inclined towards expression these ways we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. your experiences become like the most precious things that you have in this way. Mm -hmm. So tell tell me what's behind that line for you as a writer. Yeah, I mean, this is something I face a lot. As a writer, my toolbox is, like, what I perceive. And, like we said earlier, it's what I can learn. You know, I want to learn as much as I can. But I, but it is really, like, what I bring is, like, how I perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And when I'm having moments of imposter syndrome, um, which rarely happens. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's that like? Yeah, <laughs> once a year, maybe it flares <laughs> up. Um, and it's like, oh, like, without being like, everyone's kind of making stuff up, but like, everyone is like, um, mostly telling their stories through the lens through which they perceive it, and that mm-hmm. is legitimate. Yeah. And I try to remember that when I'm reading something I don't agree with. I mean, I think sometimes you can read or watch stuff where you're like, oh, this feels like a phony or not thought-out take, but you can tell, too, when it's like a thought-out take, and you're like, oh, this isn't resonating with me, but it's just different. I mean, it's not so different from that Gwendolyn like um, Brooks quote of just like, you yeah. can accept it as being something different and different from yourself. But then reminding that that also applies to you. That's also Froggy telling you to draw 
the window. Totally. Yeah. And like, and her saying like, you have different perspectives on the same thing. And like, so Ramsey kind of having this moment of like, I am an authority in how I perceive the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is something I try to remind myself as an artist. And I can like, I can do a lot to supplement that authority. Yeah. But like, ultimately, no one else can tell me how I view the world. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, so one of the things I love about Ramsey is that I feel like it exemplifies this thing that for me is true across many of your films, which is your main characters are often these kind of like dreamers mm -hmm. who are caught in systems that don't make sense to them. Mm-hmm. Or they're being kind of propelled forward through these systems. And they don't necessarily panic. I mean, eventually they do. Like, Ramsey mm -hmm. has this explosion, ultimately. Yeah. But for a lot of the action of these stories, these characters seem to believe that through some combination of, like, empathy and earnestness, <laughs> they will be able to navigate this mystery. Totally. And, like, I'm thinking of, in particular, the, um, I'm going to forget that. I think it's called Real Car. Yes. The one where you, you play this character who wakes up and a narrator tells her it's moving day. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so she's like, okay. Yeah. There's, <laughs> <laughs> like, a packed suitcase. She, like, goes out onto the street, and then there's a piece of cardboard. This is Real Car. And she, like, attaches that. She like puts it over her shoulder and gets on a bike and rides away, leaves a suitcase behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she eventually like offers the narrator a bottle of water. Mm -hmm. The narrator then abandons her at one point. Mm -hmm. A new narrator who doesn't even speak the same language as her shows mm -hmm. up. And she's like, do you want some water? Uh -huh. Like, it's so, it's so genuine, even though nothing that is happening to her makes sense. Uh -huh. Anyway, um, <laughs> I won't describe the whole movie. but no, um, It's nice hearing it described back to you. Because sometimes you're so in a world, you're like, that is what happened. <laughs> Well, is that is that kind of sensibility of these characters, does it feel true to your intentions um, as a filmmaker? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, before that even, it just sort of feels a little true to me. Mm. I, you know, am not quick to anger. Mm -hmm. um, mm. I'm probably quick to judgment, but I'll keep it to myself. <laughs> But I, I genuinely just don't get very angry, and I'm kind of, like, down to go with the flow. I kind of pride myself on not reaching anger very quickly in a lot of ways and, like, allowing situations to unfold and understanding them for what they are and the context and what they are. And, like, also kind of, like, to, you know, I am a main character in my own life mm -hmm. <laughs> and understanding the perspective on that, that that's just not the case. And I think, you know, some fun I had with that real car video is like, you know, we're following me as the main character. Um, and there's a narrator who's like, you know, propelling me forward. But then they have something else to do and they leave. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of widens that world a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then that film ends with me abandoning the car and walking into the ocean. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was like, and, and that, I forget the line exactly. It's been a few years since I made that, but um, it was a little like, oh, you thought the car was this, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the second narrator says to us, the viewer via subtitle, which is like yes. another <laughs> level of intermediation. She says, 
you thought the bike was the car also, didn't you? Oh, yeah. You No, it's, what did you, it's, it's even better than that. You say, you thought, as did I, that the bike was the car. What you've just said is really... Um, cracked something open for me is, mm-hmm. if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that maybe there is some element of this, like, you know, earnest do-gooder dreamer person in the in the center of the stories, mm-hmm. but also an awareness on your part as an artist that you're constantly trying to remember that you're always the main character in your own story, but that is not other people's experience. Yeah, and there's just limits of, like, I'm very interested in the boundaries to which, like, language and communication can take us and then, yeah. like, what the steep cliff off of that right. boundary is. <laughs> yeah. So in this moment where your character goes, oh, there's a narrator in this story and he's leaving now. Mm-hmm. He must. He has a story of his own. Yeah. Um, and then when the second narrator says to us, you, like me, thought uh, that the bike was the car, it's like, don't even assume that you're watching this movie the right way. Totally, yeah. And, like, and like similar, uh, yeah, it, I, it's funny. I actually haven't even made a lot of these connections. And, like, now I'm like, oh, my God, they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're closing in on me. No, but it's, like, yeah, even with, like, Ramsey, like, mm-hmm. you know, in the scene where she has the, you know, explosion of, like, I remember everything that's happened, and she's saying it to someone who's telling her his perception of something, which we are sort of, you know, meant to understand is wrong, but mm-hmm. the more generous read of that is like it, it isn't to him. Yeah, you know, and like I'm really drawn to like because like I use language as a vehicle for work, for mm-hmm. pleasure, you know, and I I love to talk <laughs> and like um, makes you a good podcast guest. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Um, and and there's like. It's just this, like, scaffolding we've created to try and relate to one another. And scaffolding has limits and can only go around so much. And then there's atmosphere around that that can't be spoken about. And, like, that's where, like, miscommunications happen, which are very fun to me. Yes. Well, now that you're talking about this, you're making me Mm -hmm. realize that a lot of times these pivot points in these films happen via language. Mm -hmm. Um, You're making me think of the moment in Ramsey where... Ramsey's at the like antique shop, mm-hmm. and she gets a text from or a call from her friend or a text from her friend, um, and she's like, "Oh, I'll be right there." And she very she like lifts up her umbrella and it smashes these dolls. Mm-hmm. And the woman who owns the shop comes up to her and says, "You murdered the dolls." Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I, "What? Yeah, like, I did not murder the do- dolls. Like she's not denying that she broke them, but it was obviously an accident." Yeah. But the shopkeeper's version of in, in the shopkeeper's you murdered movie, my babies. Yes, yeah, you murdered my babies. And I mean, I thought what, something that I really connected with about that scene is it seems like Ramsey is maybe a frustrated, creative sort of person. Mm-hmm. We, we don't necessarily know the specifics, but another line she says that <laughs> it's very close to home is people are like, "What are you up to?" And she's like, "I've got some projects." Yeah, <laughs> that I'm. Working on totally, and she kind of repeats that a few times. Um, but what's what's so w- the thing that connected me about w- about the doll sequence is that when you are in that state of disconnect from your craft, if you're not working in the sense that you're not making your work, you also are not working in the sense of functioning, and you become more likely to be the kind of person who would knock dolls over in an antique shop. Mm -hmm. And that that felt very real and embodied. But I also love the way she says, I have some projects going on, because that is true. 
Yeah. But it's an unacceptable answer, and she knows that. Yeah. And, like, and I think her saying that and not specifying it is her way of, like, I kind of imagine, like, um, keeping, like, a balloon up in the air. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the balloon being sort of her, like, artistic integrity. Like, of course I'm working on something. And, and like, this, I think, relatable fear of, like, well, I have to always, you know, sharks, they have to swim or they sink, you know? <laughs> um <laughs> As you get older, as you get more confident in your identity and practice as an artist, like, it's okay to not have something happening. Yeah. Um, and, like, just be like, oh, I'm in between things right now. Yeah. But I think it was sort of this frantic, like, I mean, not to get too hoity to or not hoity-toity, but, like, it's almost sort of this, like, capitalist like um mm-hmm, pressure mm-hmm. to be like well I'm constantly making and I'm constantly putting like stuff out and I'm constantly you know producing 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 I have projects like yeah. uh, I don't know what they are but I'll get back to you and I'll <laughs> respond to that email and like yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like sort of this like kind of like I have to always you know say yes to everything and something that I have learned over the years is like rest is really really important to yeah like the longevity of my like creative identity and um i'm like kind of like actually like just coming out of here like a kind of like a dormant period Mm. and Mm. i like for maybe the first time in my life don't feel guilt (laughs) that's great yeah it's great it's new i mean like again i'm sure it'll (laughs) peek its head back out somewhere and um yeah like this like f- need to feel like the keep to keep moving or you'll lose it. Mm-hmm. And instead of trusting that like it's part of you, it's not something that mm-hmm. you're going to like lose. I mean, you know, you have to maybe like warm it back up, but mm-hmm. well, you're making me think of the part in Ramsey where she meets up with her friend mm-hmm. who is an actress, I guess. Yeah. And Rachel, <laughs> Rachel. And the friend says, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> The friend says, she's just had some experience. I forget what the experience is. And she's like, I'm thinking of turning it into a one-woman show. My manager thinks that's a great idea. Yeah. (laughs) I have a manager. I don't know if you know. Um, And that strikes me as, that is the version, the opposite version of what you're describing. The idea that she's like, well, I need, I'm an actress, so I need to be acting. And this thing happened, so maybe I'll turn that into a one-woman show. I don't know if I like it as an idea, but this external person to me, who only exists to monetize my work, yes. um, says I should do it, so therefore I should do it, and this is being an artist. And, I mean, I feel like what you're doing in Ramsey, without saying it very deftly, is, like, Ramsey is the real artist in the framework that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, Ramsey's the one who is like, I'm, I'm in a generative period right now. Yeah. I'm going towards something, and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And she recognizes it when, if we take the the doll TV show that she develops yeah. <laughs> as real, she she knows it when she sees it. Yeah, but she has to get there yeah. on her own. And but it is Rachel who I feel like the world would be more likely to recognize as the artist because she's always talking about all the art she's doing. Totally, and like you know. I like I'm someone for the most part if someone tells me they're an artist or they identify as an artist like who am I to say they're not yeah you know like um hell yeah we need more yes like of that amen and like um you know I don't know if I did that so much as like who is or isn't the real artist but like to kind of maybe speak to some of the just yeah these anxieties of Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. 
um, this need to constantly be working, this need that, like, oh, she has this manager who's, like, excited about her work. Like, I wish I had someone who was getting paid to be excited about my work. Like, mm-hmm. you know, very just real things I think a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I kind of, like, liked these characters voicing out those things. And I do think, like, with Ramsey, that character of, like, maybe this acceptance, this patience um, that, like, I think, for me, at least, really benefits me. I mean, I also have some friends who are, like, able to just, like, go, 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 and they're able to, like, network in a way that, like, for other people would be slimy, but they're just, like, good at it, you know? And, like, they're able to, like, cold call agencies, and I'm just like, yeah, you're doing it, and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And... And, like, it's very genuine to who they are, and that's mm-hmm. cool. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, um, and, like, it takes a lot of the joy out of it for me because I'm not very good at it. Um, and having to, like, make peace with that has been part of my process, too. Yeah. And, again, like, just really, like, well, like you know, going back to what we said is, like, that doesn't make me less of an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not at all. Yeah, and not- like some people just have more business savvy. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, not to like you know <laughs> read Ramsey as like an ur text for like at you know every thought that uh, you have about art. Yeah. But I can't help thinking in this moment that the end of Ramsey is almost about this phenomenon where she. So uh, the, I said this in shorthand earlier, but what happens is she takes one of the doll heads with her that mm-hmm. she breaks in the store. She's sitting on the lake with Rachel. Mm-hmm. She looks at the doll head on her finger. She has this fantasy of the dolls as part of this stage show. Um, it ends up getting adapted into a television show, which nobody gives her credit for. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, she's walking by the antique shop. And the woman who told her that she murdered the dolls Uh (laughs) says, you're the one who made my dolls famous. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you get to see Ramsey have this little moment like, somebody gets it. Yeah. Like, it's like this one, it's this recognition. And, like... This is someone who was, like, really mad at her, you mm-hmm. know, however long ago. And I think I wanted to have, like, sort of that cyclical nature in there, too, of, like, yeah, the, these feelings aren't permanent. And, like, and, you're, and relationships are malleable. And, like, um, yeah, that, like, that was sort of important to me, too. But, yeah, the recognition. Yeah. And, and she's, like, very, it's a very, like, satisfying moment for Ramsey. I take from it, too, that even if you are not immediately recognized Mm -hmm. for your work, if you're not one of these people who's good at cold calling United Talent (laughs) agents, is that even the name of an agency? I don't know (laughs) agency names. Um, You're not good at cold calling agents and and schmoozing and whatever, but but you do have ideas that you sometimes follow through. In the end, I mean, this is one of the first things you said in our conversation is that, like, if you follow creative ideas that are not true to you, mm-hmm. um, 
because you think they'll make you money, you are pretty destined to probably not become successful, whatever your definite definition of that is, and not feel good about yourself. Yeah. But at least if you do something that comes from a true place, even if it's misunderstood or misattributed in Ramsey's yeah. case, it still might connect. Yeah, and like... um I mean, there's, like, no greater feeling than, like, the one person who gets it, you yeah. know? And, like, that—it sounds really corny, that, but that just, like, makes that stuff feel really worth it. And I don't know, like, I'm, like, a believer that, like, you continue to do that stuff and, like, paths will open up and, like, niches will open up that want that work. Mm -hmm. um, and— and want, yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mm -hmm. I mean, I would not necessarily describe myself as a mystical person, but the embedded in this, the conceit of this show is the idea that ultimately a lot of what artists do is not possible to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so why not have <laughs> long-form conversations where we try to explain it? I love it. <laughs> um, but uh, I think... One of the things that I have heard said over and over again by artists I really admire is if you make great work that's true to you, it will find its way to the people it will connect with. It, it, yeah. will, it will Somehow it will just happen. I can't believe somebody's practicing the guitar. <laughs> it's like a nice little, you know, yeah. <laughs> underscore. <laughs> so when I read the, the writing that you've been doing for Jezebel... Mm -hmm. Many things strike me. One, it's very funny. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it also strikes me that it is a chance, like we were talking earlier in your films about this sense that the way that you see the world is not necessarily the way that other people see the world. Mm -hmm. But it seems in your writings a lot of the time, you are maybe giving yourself permission to say, this is how I see the world. And to just like be explicit about what you see and let it sit. Yeah. Um, rather than having to be, you know, maybe self-aware and have, like, a narrator who says, like, actually, it's not that. Uh, and then another narrator who says, like, actually, it's not even that. Yeah. So I'm thinking, for example, of you have this uh, – I read this piece where you talked about how – I think it was Sharon Stone. Yeah. In the movie where she flashes the camera, she, uh, she made it this public statement saying that um, because she was – not afraid to be nude in movies, she lost custody of her children. Yeah. And you, in writing that piece, say that, you know, uh, in evaluating the legal proceedings that were around this, it seems like um, there were other factors involved in this, so it may not be exactly, that. you know, her version of reality may not be yeah. exactly. But to the point that you made earlier, this is her felt reality, and I think we can all agree that women are often punished for uh, engaging with their sexuality in a public forum. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of struck me as like a collection of all these things you've been talking about. It's acknowledging subjectivity, but it's also celebrating subjectivity. And it is a chance to like, write. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That was like an interesting piece because I was really struck by that news when I saw it. And so I was like, let me, you know dig into this and then upon digging into it I was like oh I think this timeline isn't totally like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. lining up um, 
exactly the way she's recalled it. Also, the podcast she's talking about it on is a podcast with like a good friend of hers, and they're like the premises they're catching up over lunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, something I think a lot because I write a lot about celebrities is like the context with which we're getting the information. A lot of the times it's, like, from PR people. You know, so I think a lot about, like, what version of the story am I getting? Who benefits from the story being told this way? Who benefits from me writing about it? Um, And, like, what's what's actually worth saying? Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of, like, a perfect example of, like, yeah, like, okay, I think maybe her timeline's not totally correct. And court documents are, like, they further a particular point of view, one that does not tend to favor women or sex workers or, honestly, children. You know, they usually have, like, a white male point of view and, like, holding that to also be true. And so that was actually a really interesting piece for me to write because I think she is someone that is very prone to embellishment. Uh uh And people who are prone to embellishment, like... You know, it does seem like she lost custody of her kid at one point. And, like, that is a traumatic event. And, like, she's also recalling it to a friend. Like, how many times are you exaggerating when talking to a friend? And, Mm -hmm. like, like, yeah, the core of the matter is that this is actually an experience that women who are much less powerful and famous than Sharon Stone have all the time. And what's really great about writing is, like, I can lead a reader through – my thought process. What I really enjoy about writing is I can be like, okay, hold my hand yeah. <laughs> and we're going to come through. But it's there's something very authentic about what you just said, like hold my hand, let's get through this. Because if we go back to the, your answer to the very first question, you're kind of holding your own hand through the writing process yeah. where you're saying, I'm interested in this story, but wait, what about this thing? Uh, okay, hold on. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. Uh-huh. Does it matter? <laughs> no? Okay, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... I mean, and you're describing the way you worked on this piece. You were fascinated by her. You were fascinated by this thing that she said. And then the more you looked into it, you were like, hmm, her narrative might be a little bit off, but I'm still connected with this original idea. Yeah. It's very interesting to me to think about the fact that the piece resonated with me. And in hearing you tell it, perhaps that is because your process in writing it was very authentic Mm. to your interest in the subject matter. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, it's like... Um, I, I, anytime anyone says they read what I write, it's like, it, it truly, I'm just like, thank you. <laughs> Cause like sometimes you're just churning stuff out. And also like, not that you would doubt this, but the comments you get are like, oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. 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 It would, like every comment. And I, I, I'm getting better about not reading the comments. Um, but every comment on that piece was just like, why would you even fucking write about Sharon Stone? She's crazy. You know, just, and you're like, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. Like, um, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so, normal and sane people don't comment. That is what I've learned. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, a tale as old as the internet, but yeah. um, uh, a tale we're still telling. Exactly. Um, yes. <laughs> the last question I like to ask folks yeah. is, uh, and thank you again for being so generous with your time yeah. and your your process and your thoughts. Um, do you have a, an artistic mantra? Something you tell yourself um, when you need to tell yourself something? Um, yes. So sort of what I touched on earlier of like make the thing you want to make 
because at the end of the day, then you made what you wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that. And then one also to really tie in is one that my dad always says, which is just that work makes work. Mm-hmm. And I have had many different like variations and identities as an artist. And I'm still very young. Um, and all I just know is that like I make something and I don't know what the end game is, mm-hmm. but it's always led me to making the next thing. Or yeah. it's introduced me to someone who I then get to collaborate with. Or I mean, so many times I've made something that nothing happened for it or with it. And we're like, well, I made that. And then five years later, someone's like, you're the one who made that thing. And then I thought of you for this project. And it's just like, um, it would be foolish to think, you know, the end game of any of your work. That's the best last line we've ever had in one of these interviews. (laughs) Thank you, Katie Ruth Ashcraft. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. This so Wild Card Wednesday. This so Wild Card Wednesday. 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 I, like you, dear listener, am terrified of the implications of AI, particularly when it comes to art. Right now, the WGA is on strike, and one of the things that they are protesting is the fact that there seems to be a clear and present danger that studios will use AI to write movies and write TV shows because there is this perception that AI somehow knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, a piece of encouragement that I took from Twitter recently, sort of ironic that I took it from an algorithmically driven platform, but let's not get too distracted by that. Um, Somebody put up something about uh, the fact that AI, by definition, can only look backwards. It cannot look forwards, right? The way AI works, (laughs) I'm about to say definitively as if I really know, but my understanding of it is that it looks at the existing body of human output and uses that as information to spit out something that seems to represent a distillation of all of those pre-existing things. And I take some comfort from the fact that the greatest art that has always gripped us, inspired us, and transformed us never meets our expectations. It's always something that surprises us and challenges us and seems like it's coming from a place that we've never been before emotionally. And I don't think that AI is ever going to be able to do that. So that is a comfort, but in the meantime, I think 
it is important to resist. I'll show you the trap. Don't think that you cannot be taken, seduced by deceitful witchcraft practices. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Katie Ruth Ashcraft for joining me on the show today. Check the show notes for this episode to see where you can watch Katie Ruth's movie, Ramsey, which we talked about in the interview, where you can read her writing for Jezebel. And uh, she has a substack, which you can subscribe to, Katie Ruth, K-A-D-Y-R-U-T-H dot substack dot com. She's also on Instagram. I will link that as well. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. If you have thoughts about anything you have heard on The Midnight Disease, I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line. Midnight at W-A-L-T dot F-M. Thank you, as always, for letting your madness ride with mine. We will be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.